Good morning. You don't know how tempted I was this morning on the thumb drive which the PowerPoint presentation has been placed. Happened to have some pictures of my granddaughter. I was tempted to say, oh, how did that get up there? But I restrained myself. But it is uh, good, to, uh, good to be back in the saddle, so to speak. This is Lesson 22 in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I've called this the most beautiful words in the Bible, and I suppose that is debatable, but these are wonderful words that our Lord Jesus spoke, uh, at least as you see them in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, coming from Psalm 40. I, uh, I was thinking as I, as I was looking at this text, I was remembering an experience I had at a banquet, speaking at a banquet, oh, a number of years ago. And it was one of those banquets where people uh, cheer you on. And, and it's interesting because some people will cheer you on on the beat. Some people will cheer you on off the beat. Sometimes they're doing on the beat and off the beat at the same time, and that gets a little complicated. But this particular lady was, was cheering me on, and then when I got, it was a message on Barnabas, and when I was just getting to the, the good part, she goes, oh, and it was like, here it comes. And she was right. She was right. And I, and I was thinking that if she were listening to the book of Hebrews being read and this passage were read, she'd say, oh, it's coming. It's coming. And it is. This is, as it were, the conclusion to the argument of the first 10 chapters and uh, it is also, you might say, the, the conclusion of, of that uh, more condensed argument of chapter 8, verse 3, through chapter 10, verse 18. As a result, you would expect, in a conclusion, to be hearing some things that you have heard before. People, when they conclude, basically tend to reiterate what they've been saying and make their points of emphasis. And so there certainly are those elements in, in this text and in this message. But having said that there is repetition, there, uh, there are, is some uh, content here which is not repetitious. When we look at this text, we see that three Old Testament texts have been cited as, as proof or support of what the author is saying. He cites Psalm 110. That's not new. We've seen that before in the book of Hebrews. He cites Jeremiah chapter 31, and you remember he extensively quotes those verses on the New Covenant in chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, looking at, at uh, the New Covenant and its relationship to his argument. What is new is the quotation from Psalm 40, and that's those beautiful words that I, that I really want to focus on, if I can, this morning. Because there are some questions. The first question is, how is it that the author of Hebrew can, Hebrews can go to Psalm 40, a psalm of David, and take those words and, in effect, put them in the mouth of our Lord Jesus? Uh, or we should say probably more accurately, technically, in the mouth of the second person of the Godhead before he has uh, taken on human flesh in his incarnation. How can he use those? And, and then... What's really interesting is if you were to look up uh, the citation 
that comes out of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8a, you would uh, find that in verse 6, that middle statement is very different from what you find uh, quoted here in Hebrews chapter 10. And so you'd have to say, how is that that it could be cited so differently from the way we read it in our English Bibles and read it in the Hebrew text? And uh, it's also the first reference to, to Psalm 40, and so, and, and I guess you'd say the only reference, but it it is so significant, I think, that you have to ask, what is the unique contribution of this psalm and this quotation to uh, the argument? And so in the midst of all of the things that are what you might call old or repetitious, here is a new element that's introduced here that I think is very significant for us and, and therefore calls for a bit of attention. So what's its unique meaning and contribution? So if you don't mind, I'm going to wait, as it were, my message a little bit and, and put more emphasis, more concentration on verses 5 through 10 and the quotation from Psalm uh, 40. Well, let's look at those first four verses, which I call prototypes versus perfection. Now, if you've ever looked at prototypes, for instance, the prototype of an automobile, I noticed that General Motors was selling some of their prototypes, <laughs> trying to generate a little cash. Probably need to sell more than that. But, but some prototypes are actually carved out of wood or something, and they're not going to have an engine. You know, they're, 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 just, they're just what it looks like. And, and so prototypes are, are virtually never perfect. They are anticipations. They are... Uh, something that you begin to refine and, and perfect and whatever. And so when you look at the Old Covenant, when you look at those things that are called shadows, they are not the substance. They are those things which anticipate something uh, better. And, and so they are prototypes. But those are placed against the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So look at verses 1 through 4. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself. It is therefore completely unable, by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year, to perfect those who come to worship. For otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers would have been purified once for all, and so have no further consciousness of sin." But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Shadows are anticipations, but they're not perfect uh, replicas of what's coming. And in fact, this morning, as I was sitting back in my seat, I just happened to be sitting at a place where one of those spotlights comes down, and it casts the shadow of my head on the seat in front of me. And, and you know that my wife is in Missouri and I am here, and so you're probably looking to see if my socks match and whatever. In fact, my wife asked me a couple of questions about that, not that it would have helped. But as I looked at my reflection, my shadow in the seat in front of me, I could see my head and then there was this poofy thing that stuck out and I thought, oh my goodness, did I forget to comb my hair? And, and so I rushed back to the restroom, looked in the mirror, but my point is that shadows aren't always accurate. They're, they're not precise in, in the way they do it. In fact, you know that there can be all kinds of gimmickry when you cast shadows by your fingers and whatever. And, and so the shadows are not perfect. They are prototypes, 
but they speak of the good things to come, that is, the good things that come in Christ. But they are not able to perfect. They are not able to do away with sin. They are not able to make it possible for men to draw near to God with a clear conscience and in a right standing before uh, Him. So, they, they don't do the job. And he says then, if these sacrifices had worked, if the old system had worked, then you wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over again. You know, if you passed your driver's test on the first time, then you don't have to go back. <laughs> but when you go back day after day, year after year, <laughs> there's a little message that ought to go off in your head somewhere. Something's wrong. It's not right. It's not fixed. So he says, the fact that these things had to continue is evidence that there is something imperfect, something less than what is needed. And then he says, the law cannot... This is sort of adding salt in the wounds, I guess, is the way I see it. He says, it's not only that the law couldn't perfect, as we've talked before, as Romans makes clear in Romans chapter 3, the law, as it were, can put off sins another year. It never really paid them off. That's what happens at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is something about the law and this system that not only is it incomplete... And not only is it inadequate and therefore in need of something better, but it's actually a reminder. And I was trying to think of examples of this. For instance, if you get a statement, as you do, if you get statements from your credit card company or whatever it is, you know, it reminds you of what you owe, does it? You know, I mean, it would be great to know if it was paid off. But when you can't pay it off, Every time that statement comes, every month, what happens? You're reminded of the fact that you're not paid up. And, and there's a sense in which every time a sacrifice was offered, it was saying, you know, your, your bill is still pending. I was thinking about, too, the illustration of, of uh, prisons. They're sometimes called correctional institutions. <laughs> I've spent some time in those, I know, on the other side of the bars. But I, I've spent a fair bit of time inside prisons. And, and I have to tell you, they don't correct or cure anybody. They just contain them. And, and in fact, there's lots of evidence that, in fact, prisons corrupt even more than, than they cure. I had one student in a class. Uh, I was teaching uh, in psychology. And he said, when I get out, I'm going to use this. He said, eh, if I go straight, which didn't sound very promising, I can use it there. But this stuff works in crime, too. So they don't cure. They just contain. And, and that's sort of the way the law is. It doesn't really solve the problem. If you were talking about cancer, it's one thing to be in remission. But that's not the same as being cured. It's just saying it isn't going any further. So the law has its problems, and therefore there is a need for something new, something better, and that is, of course, the work of our Lord Jesus. So let's talk about the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that perfects in verses 5 through 10, and this is, as I warned you, the favorite, my favorite part of this particular text. Verse 5, so when he came into the world, by the way, I prefer the word therefore, uh, which is probably the best way to render that. Therefore, meaning because 
the law didn't work and something better has to come. Therefore, Christ came uh, into the world and he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you took no delight in. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. When he says above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor did you take delight in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he says, here I am, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And just say, uh, as an observation, when you have these different words or uh, terms that are used for sacrifices, offerings, whole burnt offerings, sin offerings, what it's trying to do is to, to encapsulate all of the Old Testament offerings, to sum all of them up and say, all of those, every single one of them, cannot really do the job, could not do the job. There was a need for something better to come. But uh, take a look at, at, at this text in terms of the way in which it is cited to us. The text in this instance is cited from the Septuagint, which is most often the case when the New Testament writer cites from the Old Testament, he cites from the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and of course then there's the Hebrew Masoretic text, but most often a New Testament writer is going to be citing from the Septuagint, and he does so here. But that leads to some, uh, some questions that we need to answer, and mainly it's with that variation that we find at verse 6. We read, a body you have prepared for me, in Hebrews 10.5, and in the text of... of uh, of, of Psalm 40, it says, my ears thou hast opened. Actually, it, it's kind of, it's a little more coarse term where it's almost like my ears you have, you know, gouged out or, or dug out. Uh, and, and so you look at that and you say, how in the world did the translators of the Septuagint ever come up with that? Now, I have to confess, I have called the Septuagint the NIV of the Old Testament, and, and sometimes it's not nearly as strict a translation or as accurate. If the New Testament writer doesn't like it, he may change it or correct it uh, or go with the Masoretic text. But there are, there are arguments that are, that are put forth that would explain why in the world the translator would come to this. I don't think that he ate pickles and peanut butter the night before and it came to him in some kind of a revelation, I think that the, the, the translators of, of the Septuagint somehow saw that maybe this is a part of the whole. That is, if God is giving one ears, if he is fashioning his body, so to speak, then that's really a small part of the bigger part, which is to create the whole person or the body. That may be the argument. I'm not really going to engage myself in, in trying to settle that as much as to look at the result. It, it seems to me we can say this. The writer to the Hebrews cited it, and he cited it as Scripture. 
Therefore, it cannot be wrong. Would you not agree? It's inspired and inerrant. And so he did it right. What I want to point out is what the effect of that is. By translating it the way that they did, without having any idea that a number of years later, uh, the writer to the Hebrews is going to cite this, he perfectly sets this text up to, to refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? When it says, a body you have prepared for me, how better could you have referred to the fact that, that our Lord, the second person of the Godhead, in eternity past, is committing himself to take on a human body and to enter into this world and to do those things which the Father has called him to do, namely to suffer and to die and to rise again. So the, the, the translation of the Septuagint providentially sets the stage for the way in which this text can now be used. And we say, wow. In fact, I think if we're honest, what we probably would say in reading this is, I can understand exactly how this applies to the Messiah. I have a little more trouble seeing how it applies to David. And David's the guy who wrote it. And all I can say about that is this. When you come to passages like Psalm 22, starting with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then you see the description there that is given of, of, of the psalmist's sufferings. Those, I, I think you could say, are poetically exaggerated. You know, the trees clap their hands and whatever. I, I think we can all acknowledge that, that in poetry... You, you may overstate or dramatize what you're, what you're trying to say. But in the way that the psalmist dramatized his own sufferings, if you would, that he extrapolated it to, uh, you know, some multiplier, to the degree that he did that, it precisely fits our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's what I think you have to see here. As the writer to the Hebrews read these words, he said, yes. I understand them as having been written by David. I understand them as having application to David. But there is this further meaning that relates to the son of David, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so this is, a, this is, in my opinion, a, a wonderful, wonderful text and beautifully prepared for use by the writer to the Hebrews. Now, what's the unique contribution of Psalm 40? Well, let me tell you, first of all, where it isn't unique. It isn't unique in telling us that God is not ecstatic about Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. Okay? It's not really unique there. In fact, if you look at the text that I've listed, Psalm 51, verses 16 and, and, and 17, remember he says, you know, David, in confessing his sin, uh, I could come and I could bring all these sacrifices, but what you want from me is a broken and a contrite heart. Sacrifices aren't really going to deal with the guilt of my sin. Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. He's basically saying all of your sacrifices and offerings and ritual activities are just nullified by your life. You live a life of rebellion against God, and sacrifices aren't going to make up for that. Uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, we come to probably the, the classic text. And I guess maybe we ought to take a look at that. Jeremiah chapter 7. Because there it really does focus on the element of obedience. 
Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, he is, of course at Mount Sinai, going to give them the law and the uh, regarding sacrifices. But he says, as you came out, I didn't ask you to do that. I basically asked you to obey. Verse 23, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in the way which I commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. So it, it, the point here is that sacrifices are of no value minus obedience. Sacrifices have value for those who walk in obedience and love for God. So obedience plus sacrifice is good. Sacrifices alone, and especially sacrifices offered in disobedience, do not have uh, value and merit before God. Anyway, the, the text in Hosea uh, he, God says he would rather have loyalty or loyal love than sacrifice. Uh, Amos chapter 5, Micah chapter 6, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you discover that it isn't the sacrifice itself, the ritual, which gives God pleasure. It is the heart of the worshiper that he looks for. And I, I make the point there where I say even devout Jews recognize this. Some of the scholars have observed that you can imagine if you saw the sacrifices as absolutely the, the core and the basis for your relationship with God, then think what a disaster it would have been when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was taken down and there's no opportunity. Look at Israel today. No opportunity to offer sacrifices. And, and the point here is even devout but unbelieving Jews have come to terms and said, you know what? It really isn't the physical offering of the sacrifices which is the essence of what our faith is about. So it, it seems to me that, that that is a point that is clear, but it's not new. It's attested by our text, but it's not a new thought that's introduced by our text. So the question is, what is unique? What is the unique contribution of Psalm 40? And I would suggest it is this. It is the obedient, joyful submission of the Son to the purpose of God for him in his incarnation and death. It is his joyful, obedient submission. So that really begins to resonate with me. But before I, I, I jump on that point too much, let me just take you to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because I think this text really illustrates it. Saul is already messed up in, in, in uh, chapter 13. Remember where he wouldn't wait for Samuel and he offers the sacrifice instead. And Samuel basically says, this does not bode well. When you get to chapter 15, God instructs Saul to, to absolutely annihilate the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites had done harm to Israel at the time of the Exodus, and God wasn't going to forget that. So he says, I want you to annihilate them. I want you to destroy. I want you to kill every living thing. 
Man, woman, child, animal. And you know from that account that that isn't what happened. Agag was allowed to live, for example, the king. And they kept uh, uh, the, the prime, the prize animals. So when Samuel comes and he meets Saul, Saul basically says, I did just what God wanted me to. And my favorite line, perhaps, in all of First and Second Samuel, what is this bleating of the sheep I hear? <laughs> Don't you just love that? You know, what, what are all, what's, what's this? All these animals. Here's where he begins to try and make excuses. Saul isn't very good at this, but he's working at it. He says, the reason I saved these was so that they could be sacrificial animals that I could offer to God. So he's saying, well, it really wasn't wrong because this will be a sacrifice. And you know how God loves sacrifices. And this is where Samuel says to Saul, no, no. God loves obedience more than he loves sacrifice. And he says, disobedience is like witchcraft. It's offensive to God. And so this offer of giving these things sacrificially to God is not going to cut it. Because what God wanted from you was obedience and you disobeyed. Therefore, your sacrifices are worthless. Now, lay that over onto our text in Hebrews and think about this in, in reference to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I was thinking this past week about the sacrifice of animals. And you think about all the, the blood, all the animal life that was lost in, in all of that. And the first question is, why would God have animals be sacrificed for sin? Now, I've never heard anybody say this, and that probably tells you what you need to know. But there is a sense in which animals are not sinners. Is that not right? Animals don't sin. I got to tell you, I've, we've had some animals that seem like Satan had a real hold of them. So I don't know what to do with that. But, but, but in the sense of, of human beings who know and understand the will of God, they know what God wants them to do, and they shake their fist in God's face and say, forget it, I'm doing what I want. Animals don't do that. So in that qualified sense, animals are innocent. You couldn't find any man to do that, folks. Not until Christ, because every man was tainted by his own guilt. So there was a sense in which an animal sacrifice could be an innocent sacrifice. And you remember it had to be without blemish, which, of course, is a, is a picture, uh, I think, uh, of that. So animals are, are, let's say, innocent with quotes. But I have to tell you this. Animals are not willing. Animals are not willing sacrifices. I, uh, every once in a while, I have to load up a trailer load of stuff, and I take it out to the, to the dump uh, out here a little ways. And you have to go through Owen's uh, farm. Go right past Owen's farm. Have you ever gone by Owen's farm at the wrong time? Uh, and, and by that I mean slaughter time. Don't take your grandkids. <laughs> I think I did that once, and it's really hard to explain what they're hearing. But my point is this. I know it's a little crass. But my point is 
That's what was happening when sacrificial animals were offered to God. They were not saying, oh yes, I'm into this. They were not willing sacrifices. Maybe innocent in a qualified way. Not willing. Do you understand then the significance when he's talking about the superior sacrifice of Christ? It's not the sacrifice of an animal. It's the sacrifice of a man. It's not the sacrifice of someone guilty. It's the sacrifice of one who is sinless. It is not the sacrifice that needs to be offered over and over and over again. It is a sacrifice that is offered once. And it is a sacrifice that is offered willingly. That, that to me is absolutely unique when you come to the person of our, of our Lord Jesus. And if I'm reading this text, I think I would go on to say it is joyfully willing. You know, and, and we'll get to Philippians chapter 2 and, and some other texts, but I think in our minds, sometimes, at least in mine, there is a tendency to look at our Lord in eternity past and it sort of <laughs> reminds me of Isaiah. Whom shall I, you know, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's only one guy in the room, Isaiah. You know, I was like, well, I guess it's me. Well, th- there may be a sense in which we look at our Lord's decision to go to the cross as, well, all right. And especially in light of the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any way this can pass from me, so there may be a sense in which we look at this and say, you know, he went. But it was sort of like, you know, that's just what you have to do. It's sort of dutiful. I see in this text something more than that. I see an, an enthusiasm and a zeal. And, and remember in Hebrews chapter 12, he who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There is something joyful about this. So his willingness sets it apart. And this sacrifice of Jesus now becomes utterly unique. And it's the Psalm 40 text, which for me makes that point clear. I've gotten so excited I don't even know where I am in my notes anymore. Well, who cares? i got lots of time. <laughs> don't walk out yet. Okay, so let's go then to, uh, to the next section, verses 11 through 14. Sacrifices old and new. And this we see Christ's sacrifice contrasted with the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 11 describes the old. Verse 12 describes the new, that is the sacrifice of Jesus and its superiority. So when you lay them beside each other, it's pretty evident. The priests stood... There weren't any break rooms, you know, cots. Uh, it wasn't a lounge there. These guys were working all the time. And, they, and obviously, you can see why. Their work was never done. So he says a woman's work is never done. A priest's work is never done. In fact, it, it occurred to me, I remember Don Grimm reminded me of, of how the uh, priest would retire. I think, was it 50? They retired early. You know why? They were tired because there was so much work. They didn't get breaks, long vacations, whatever. They worked hard at what they did. Uh, so the priest stood, Christ sat. There's lots of significance in that. You sit down when you're done. Our Lord rested uh, after uh, creation. 
The priests offer their sacrifices daily. Christ offers his sacrifice once for all. The uh, offerings of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood did not remove sins. As he said earlier, they only remind you of the sins that have yet to be removed. And the, the uh, sacrificial offering of our Lord Jesus Christ removes sin and perfects men. Not in the sense that we now are sinlessly perfect in our, in our, in our conduct and lives. We all know better than that. But that we now have been given right standing before God so that we have a conscience that is free from guilt which enables us to approach a holy God, something no Old Testament believer ever envisioned with all the barriers that were set before them. There's also in, in verses 11 through 14 an allusion to Psalm 110. But the interesting thing about it is, you remember that not only is our Lord Jesus a priest, he is a king. And, and so we need to qualify this sitting down. It, it seems to me that with regard to his atoning work, his perfecting work, it's done. It is done. But he's also the king, and he is going to return. And so the, the, the quotation says, sit down until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. So while his work of redemption is done, he's not finished yet. And he is coming again, and he is coming as judge to deal with his enemies. And so he's sitting down, but he's sitting down waiting, and he's going to stand up. You know, I never thought of this before, but you almost think, you go back to Acts chapter 7, and, and Stephen, who's stoned, and you remember, he sees the Lord. I never thought of this. It's, here, it's probably not heretical, but it's way off the, the, the end of the limb. It's almost like Jesus is standing up and the Father says, Not yet, son. Think about that. Standing up. Now, some have said he's standing up to greet. Okay. But when's he going to stand up in the future? He's going to stand up to judge his enemies. And he's going to deal with people like those who stoned Stephen. Scary thought. Okay. The witness of the Spirit, verses 15 through 18. Very interesting because Hebrews does not make a great deal of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, I think I would say it's because the Spirit's work is to magnify Christ. The Spirit is not one who says, put the spotlight on me. The Spirit is the one who says, put the spotlight on Him. And so we are in Hebrews focusing on the greatness of Christ. And the Spirit is saying, yes! That's what He's about. Manifesting Christ. Magnifying His his greatness. So the witness of the Spirit is through the words of Jeremiah 31. Well, here's another statement. Look at the attachment that we have to Scripture. The words of the psalmist in Psalm 40 are the words of the second person of the Godhead. They speak precisely about him and his commitment to the incarnation and his death. The words of Jeremiah are the words of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God witnesses to us through those very words. The sequence. Well, he says that there is going to be a covenant after those days. So he is saying, here is the old and here comes the new in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ.
the, uh, the results of that. The law is written on men's hearts. The law is written on men's hearts. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. A change that takes place as a result of the new covenant. And sins are remembered no more. By the way, let me go back here and look because I forgot to write it down. But look at the last words of uh, Psalm 40 and verse 8. It is kind of interesting. You notice this? I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. If you ask the question, why in the world did the writer to the Hebrews think that he could quote Psalm 40 with respect to Messiah? And it seems to me what you've got to say is, when you see that, I don't know why he didn't include that. But it seems to me that has to be a part of the connection where the writer of the Hebrews says, Whoa! He's talking about God writing things on his heart. And then the new covenant's talking about God writing things on men's heart. I guess what I'm saying is this. God wrote the zeal and the desire to, to take on human flesh and to fulfill the scriptures with regard to the work of Christ. That was written on our Lord's heart. He wanted to do it. That's why I get to that joy thing again. And willful, uh, willing obedience. So anyway, very interesting that it's our Lord who has these things on his heart, who then in his saving work produces that in others. The law being written in their heart. Oh my. Okay. Sins are remembered no more. That says it's finished. No more work to be done. No wonder he can sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. No more offering for sin. When it's done, it's done. No need to repeat that. I want to just mention this without getting off too much on a rabbit trail. But it seems to me that, that we, as we observe communion every week, we observe it as a remembrance of what he has done. It's completed. I would say that one of the ways in which we would differ from Roman Catholicism is there's a way in which in the, in the Mass, it's as though somehow you're continually carrying that, that offering on. You're, you're carrying it out. You do it week after week. And, and all I would say to my Catholic friends is, doesn't this text say you shouldn't do that? It's one thing to celebrate what he has done. It's another thing to continue to do what is done. Well, enough. Off the soapbox. Seems to me there's a difference. Conclusion. We see then in 8.3 uh, through 10.18, there's a better priest. Better than the Levitical priesthood. Priest after the order of Melchizedek. Better place of ministry, not a tabernacle, earthly tabernacle, fancy, gold-plated as it was, or temple. Uh, but in that heavenly uh, tabernacle, the veil of his flesh, and there is a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, innocent human blood, willingly offered, once for all, effective. That's the message, I think, that the author wants us to get in, in general. 
Now, I want you to think about, it's difficult because in a way, I'm supposed to give a little application to you, but the reality is the next verses are the application. And you know, then we'll get to chapter 11 and we'll get much more specific about that. But let me just say this. It seems to me that the positive side of that is in verses 18 through 25. What then should we do? And he says, draw near, hold fast, consider how to stimulate one another. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So because of the superior work of Christ, because now our consciences have been cleansed, we are now clean and pure and holy in God's sight. We do not need to shrink back, but rather we are free to draw near. That's what we ought to do if we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Don't draw back, draw near. But the, but the backside of that is this. If the death of Christ is as great as it is, and, and, and what I'm trying to say is, however I portrayed it, it's better than that. There is nothing to compare with the supremacy and the beauty of what our, our Lord Jesus Christ has done. When I said the beautiful words, what I meant is the most beautiful words in all the Bible for me are when the Son of God says, I will go. Those are the words which brought my salvation. That's, that's the beginning point that brings about salvation for me. But if the work of Christ is as great as it is, then not only is accepting it a wonderful thing, but rejecting it is a terrible thing, is it not? To tread underfoot the precious blood of Christ as though it had no value is the most heinous, inconceivable evil. And therefore, when we read verses 26 through 31... If they're not scary to you, then you haven't read it well enough. They ought to be terrifying words to somebody who has not embraced and delighted and valued the work of Christ. Well, more to say on that in the future. Here's an interesting thought. Our text gives us a perspective of other biblical texts. I, I don't know how to explain this to you, but I, I, I realized it was happening to me as I was studying this text all of a sudden, other passages began to come to my mind. Our Lord in Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, I understand. Our Lord is, is saying there, this is a horrible thing I'm about to undergo. If there were some other way, I understand that's true. But you must counterbalance that with the joyful commitment that's described in Psalm 40. You can't forget that and look at Jesus as though he's shuffling his feet trying to avoid somehow, you know, this, this thing that he has to do in some dutiful, uh, terrible way. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. There it's talking about the humility of our Lord, and he obediently submits to the will of the Father. It's a wonderful text. But I think Psalm 40 emphasizes the joy more. Maybe that's not the way it is. Let's just put it this way. Psalm 40 forces me to see more joy in Philippians chapter 2. I would not see Philippians 2 as I ought without the backdrop of Psalm 40 as the writer to the Hebrews has quoted it. John chapter 19, verse 30. It is finished. Isn't that the summary of what the author of Hebrews is saying? 
It's done. The work of redemption is full and complete and final. And the last words of our Lord on the cross are done. You don't have to keep doing it. It just puts a note of finality. It closes the door in that sense on the old covenant and all that is there. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Done. It's a finished work. Finished by our Lord. Now, here's one that's going to catch you maybe. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. I will hasten through this. But this, I've always struggled with this text. Uh, Remember, he's talking about uh, why, why are so many Jews not coming to faith? Romans chapter 9, because God didn't choose all. He chose some. Romans chapter 10, because men didn't choose God. But when I look at this and it describes Judaism in the sense that it is trying to earn its way to heaven, it never really struck me in the light of what Hebrews was saying. But listen to it. Verse 1 of Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're working hard. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own through law works, through the keeping of the law, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they saw the new way in Christ and they said, no, we want the old. The old's better. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Isn't that what Hebrews is saying? I mean, boldly, dramatically, emphatically, repeatedly. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. If you're going to get there by works, you've got to work. And you know that doesn't work. But the righteousness based on faith speaks this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up. Do we have to bring Christ to us? Is Christ somehow wandering off out there in Netherland and we have to go seek him out and bring him? That's not what our text says in, in, in Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10. It says, he purposed to come to us. He's seeking us. We're not seeking him. There is none that seeketh after God. And then he says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your heart, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now in the light of what I read in in Hebrews and I see the new covenant, what does it say? I will write my word on their hearts. You don't have to go out and work your tail off to somehow get God's attention. God has done it all in Christ and He writes on our hearts and then we believe. Isn't that what it's saying? Man, it's just to me. Anyway, it makes Romans 10 come to light for me because I always wondered, what what are you talking about? You know, that you don't have to do this, but it's, it's, it's in you. Where? New covenant. That's what it's talking about. All right, a lot of other texts. Oh, by the way, I would like to suggest to you, I know I'm out of time, I would like to suggest to you that Psalm 40 is not only the pattern for Christ, it is the pattern for the Hebrew sufferers and us. One of the writers says it's basically a call for patient endurance in trouble, looking 
to the faithfulness of God in the past. Now think about what he says in chapter 10. He will, what he will say. He's saying, you had your property confiscated and whatever. He's saying, you've already endured hardship. He says in chapter 12, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of blood. The inference is you will. This psalm, if you look at Psalm 40, the psalmist is praising God for what he has done in the past. He is proclaiming God's greatness to those around. And as he experiences this new difficulty in his life, he trusts God and endures. Is that not exactly what Hebrews is about? About people who are facing difficulty and distress and whatever. And he's saying, look at Psalm 40. It isn't just talking about Jesus. It's talking about you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Is Psalm 40 and the words of our Lord Jesus, are those not the words that ought to mark the Christian with respect to obedience to God and the sacrifice of ourselves? Should we not say those same words, not with the same impact, obviously, but should we not be saying, my body is yours, a body you have prepared for me. You have given me a work to do, and I willingly, joyfully surrender that to you. And look to you. Isn't this a great text for a new year? If we had that spirit, trusting in the one who has written his law in our hearts, trusting in the blood of his sacrifice, and saying, that's the spirit I want. Willing, joyful obedience to let God use my body as he chooses to his glory. And trusting him for the difficulties that lie ahead. Looking at what he has done in the past. That's what this text is about. Father, we thank you for this text, Psalm 40, for all the implications it has. Help us to ponder it. Help us to understand it. And most of all, help us to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen.